Hello and welcome to Mirror Talk Podcast. Your moment of greatness starts now. Today, I am super excited to be speaking with a Middle Eastern American couple. Dr. Sheila Modia is a pediatric psychologist at a children's hospital and her husband, Jeffrey Cashew, is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a manager of clinical products and service design for a mental health tech company. They wrote a book titled The Proudest Color to help parents and caregivers immerse their children in learning how to counteract negative and harmful messages of discrimination. Welcome to the show, lovely people. How are you doing? Thank you so much. We're so excited to be here today and um, to be able to talk about this important topic. Yes, yeah, thank we're both you. very excited. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Meritor Podcast. I'm super excited to learn from you, to know more about you. I'm really um, excited to learn more about your individual stories also. Like, can you tell me about yourselves? How has the journey been, you know, coming from Iran and Palestine and, you know, studying and excelling in the United States? How has that been like for you? Yeah, well, um, I'm, I was born and raised in Illinois, which is um, a state in uh, the U.S. in a pretty small town. Um, uh, primarily, the population is composed of white Caucasian individuals. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the few Middle Easterners in that town. Um, so I grew up um, there. And when I was um, around 16, we moved to California. But both of my parents are immigrants from Iran. So they uh, started, you know, um, school and work here. Um, They immigrated at different ages in their life. Um, So they had to start over a lot of parts of their life once they came here, but they wanted to have, like many immigrant stories that we've heard, have a better future for their children. So they came here and um, started roots here. And then eventually after Illinois, we moved to California and I've been in California ever since. Mm, That's awesome. What about about you, Jeff? Yeah, so I grew up in Southern California. My dad's family are immigrants, uh, including my father from Palestine. And, um, you know, they kind of the typical immigrant story started in the Midwest and, you know, just kind of scraped together what they could, uh, made their way to California and built a family and a life out here with a larger extended family. You know, growing up, I I, I grew up in a predominantly Caucasian uh, neighborhood and went to school with uh, mostly Caucasian students and really hadn't been very aware of my culture and ethnicity until actually 9-11 happened. And mm. uh, my high school has uh, you know, not a lot of Middle Easterners in it. And so when 9-11 happened when I was in high school, there was uh, just a lot of uh, statements, uh, you know, very prejudiced, racist statements. I even had one of my teachers say on 9-11, she turned the TV off and said, you know, what should we do with all those people over there? Should we just nuke them? And, or go to war with them, or what should we do? So it's kind of at that point that I really recognized sort of the differences that were there and the importance of honoring and recognizing my cultural background. Yes. Like, for both of you, how was it like, you know, growing up in a Caucasian-dominant, you know, society? How did you manage that, you know, leaving your home where you're Iranian or Palestinian parents and family and moving out into a community that is, you know, just Caucasian-dominant? How was that like, how was that switch and mixture for you every day? actually a little bit of the opposite for me personally because I grew up in um, the Caucasian community but you're right I would go home my home was a very Middle Eastern home Mm -hmm. but then when I moved to California um, it was much more Middle Eastern dominant so in uh, in California there's a lot more diversity Mm -hmm. so it was such a big shift for me to be 
in a state or at least in Southern California where there's a large acceptance of the Middle Eastern culture. Um, I remember growing up in the Midwest, there were times that I would, um, especially post 9-11, right? Um, I would pretend to be um, Greek or Italian and pass as another culture that was more um, socially accepted uh, mm. and wasn't as heavily discriminated against mm. because I didn't want to stand out so much. So there were times where I really struggled with my own racial identity and had to um, really come to terms and understand it better. And then when we moved to California, there was a sudden shift of it's celebrated and mm. um, people know about it. And, um, and I was much more accepted. And I actually started moving towards more of my culture when I um, came to uh, to California, and especially in college, I remember joining a, a Iranian student group and and celebrating the culture there. So there was just a lot more embracing of it, and um, and I think in general, when we're looking at mental health and um, the different stages of identity development, yeah. that is one part of it is where we are trying to figure out who we are and yeah. um, trying to figure out which culture we're trying to assimilate to, especially yeah. children that are of two cultures. Mm, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. And for me, it was, you know, I physically sort of pass as a Caucasian person. And so, you know, I, it wasn't anything that was like outwardly obvious, but you know, when friends would come over um, or I'd be out with like my, my dad's side of the family, or we would have um, certain, you know, cultural uh, traditions or things that we would do, it always was a little bit awkward. I had to kind of explain things to friends, but thankfully they were always, pretty understanding. There was sometimes the weird comments and looks. Um, I think for me, what, where I experienced some friction was when people would say, oh, what's your background? And, you know, I always had to kind of make a choice. Do I want to say Palestine and then get the eyebrow and then get into the whole conversation around the conflict yeah. uh, between Israel and Palestine or mm -hmm. be just judged and ignored or just kind of say, oh, I'm Arabic or I'm, you know, uh, Lebanese or Jordanian or, or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, and that still is something that I, I, you know, pops into my head today as I even try to explain it. But I think thankfully with, um, you know, just kind of the greater acceptance and understanding of culture and race around the world, that's been something that's more uh, easily identified for myself in public. Um, you know, and then I think the other side of it was, you know, for me, not really knowing how to, you know, feeling kind of like one foot in, one foot out. You know, I, yes. I am very grateful that I get embraced by my wife's Persian side, which is really fun and, and very welcoming. And I can really tap into Middle Eastern culture in that way. But at the same time, you know, I physically look Caucasian. And so it's like, you know, if I say to Caucasian groups, you know, I'm half Arabic or I'm Arabic or identify with that, you know, you kind of raise an eyebrow and it's like, well, but you're kind of white. And so it's, it's always kind of an awkward place of not really knowing, you know, how to just kind of getting to pick one thing or do I have to pick one thing and, you know, how that sort of works. So I always feel like I'm having to kind of read a room and, and read the other person and figure out, you know, what's going to happen there. So that's that's kind of been my experience growing up and, you know, identifying with that. Yes, you would have said something that, you know, that resonates with me. Like you talked about, you know, embracing who you are, your culture, your ethnicity, your background. That helps you with your mental health 
as as you said earlier. That's that's really good. And I I kind of see um what inspires you to do your um advocacy job already. And I would love to say thank you so much for the advocacy work that you do together for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also work towards building and resilience in children. That's very inspiring. That's very great. Um, I would still love to ask you like what inspired you to 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 know to embark on this mission and um projects together as a couple. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think, honestly, uh, after um, George Floyd was murdered in the U.S., mm. there was just a lot, of, um, a lot of movement as a society to be able for us, for many people, to want to work together to mm. uh, be able to progress um, our country and to be able to share the mes- message of racial justice. Mm. And um, Jeff and I were... Um, quarantine together. We're married and we're quarantined <laughs> together. So we're spending a lot of time together and we're having a lot of these discussions, right? A lot of like, what is this future going to look like? What does this look like for our patients? Um, what will this look like one day for our children? So there's so many conversations about what's happening in the U.S. right now. And um, we wanted to be able to put together materials um, and in the form of a book to be able to start having the same conversation that we were having in our family room, in our living room, for children to be able to have with their parents outside of this. And so that was really our initiative for starting the book together. But as you can see from our history, very early on, we went to um, Belgium together. We volunteered in a Red Cross asylum camp and um, worked with uh, refugees there. So Mm. we really just have this passion of wanting to um, combine social justice, um, racial justice, the movement towards progressing um, diversity and equality and that's a value that we both have shared from the beginning. I think that's really drawn us together. Um, mm. We've been together for more than a decade now. So it's been a very um, fun time where we've been able to be able to work on those values together. Dear friend, you can grow your personal and business brand by creating a strong network through podcasting. Create real human connections, have the ability to share your story and interesting point of view. To get started, you can make use of the special offer for friends of this podcast, which is on kitcaster.com slash mirror. K-I-T-C-A-S-T-E-R dot C-O-M slash M-I-R-R-O-R. The link and further instruction or details will be found in the show notes for this episode. Thank you. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcast, or whatever platform you listen to this on. Thank you. Yes, yes. I, I, I see. I see that I, those are like you know wonderful values that you have together. That even helps you to build up your relationship together. Like you have core values to help other people, and that helps you also in your marriage to stay together and also work to do great and wonderful things together. And I, I really appreciate it because you are you are doing. You are not like saying, okay, I've finished from college. I'm now working. I can you know be comfortable with my life. Or you are using what you have, your opportunity to help other people to be, have better lives. Also, that's very good. That's impressive. Thank you. That's so a much. really nice way of putting yeah. it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. You should. You can be a therapist too. You said these statements. I'm like, wow. I felt very heard right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I was going to say, you know, one of the one of the principles um, from our world in therapy that I always kind of come back to when working with uh, individuals or just kind of in my own life is like, you know, relationships are really what uh, create something bigger in our world. And mm. this concept of, it's a German word, gestalt, which is refers to the whole being 
bigger than the sum of the parts. Yeah. And I think as uh, within our marriage, though, you know, we look at like how together can, you know, individually, we do a lot of work with, with a lot of underserved and underrepresented communities. But, you know, as we come together, we're able to create things that are even bigger than just ourselves and our marriage, which mm. has been really fun and, and really fruitful. And um, yeah, we're just, we're able to, very grateful to be able to do what we get to do on a daily basis. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. That's, I, I wish for something like this also for myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> you will find it. I know. Yes, <laughs> yes, hopefully. So talking about working together, um, I love to talk about your new book called The Proudest Color, which will be released on the 14th of September, 2021. So it, it's a book that follows the life of a little brown girl called Zara, who sees the world in vivid color. Um, she says, for me, brown is more than feeling proud. It is the color I see when I see me. So who, who is Zara and what inspired you to write this book? So um, Zara is exactly how you said she's this uh, little girl who um, sees the world in, uh, in color, like a box of crayons. And um, the inspiration for that actually came where um, for my doctoral program, I had to write an autobiography statement about myself. And I wrote about how um, sometimes I felt like a box of crayons, or I felt like a color um, that was in a box of crayons that was um, not used as often, but when I was used, um, I would make the page much more brighter, much more colorful. So um, when when uh, George Floyd was murdered, and there was a lot of talk around um, racial justice, and a lot of children were questioning their skin tone. It reminded me of when I was younger growing up in Illinois, when I was the only kid in my class um, that looked different or had a different skin tone than the other students there. And I would, when I was looking through a class photo, I just, you can spot me from a mile, <laughs> like you can know, there she is, she's right there. And so, so, and that says something, right, about um, for all those eyes are drawn to me and, and children are very naturally curious from a very young age. They're asking questions of why does someone look different or why does someone wear like a scarf on their head? They're, they're wanting to know. And so um, kids would ask me questions like, Oh, your skin is darker than mine because they hadn't seen anything like that. Um, mm. It wasn't probably in their TV shows. It wasn't people that their parents hung out with. Um, mm. The only time they saw someone that um, had that skin tone was at school and that person was me. So uh, Zahra's story is based a little bit of off, off of that. It's based off of uh, Jeff's experience as well, where he grew up also, um, you know, trying to understand his culture and his identity and trying to find pride and uh, meaning in all of that. So we kind of combine both of our backgrounds together as Middle Easterners, um, especially growing up in a post 9-11 world where our mm -hmm. culture and our identity was questioned. Um, and we pulled together materials that, um, from research, uh, really, that's a big emphasis that Jeff and I have, is that if we're going to teach children a method of being able to cope with discrimination or understand discrimination, we want it to be based in literature, in evidence-based uh, studies. So what we did pull from was um, Dr. Hughes's racial socialization theory, which we can definitely talk about as well. Um, and how, um, how if you teach a child to be proud about, of their culture and of people that look like them, mm -hmm. then that could be a method of combating the negative impact of discrimination. So mm -hmm. um, I could definitely unpack that. It's a lot to unpack, but that's yes. a little bit where the inspiration came from. Um, and, I, and I want to just kind of even back up and acknowledge too, just to kind of add to what Sheila was saying, was that, um, you know, a lot of, uh, 
immigrants as well to the to America, and, and maybe this is your experience as well abroad, is you know usually the first generation tries to assimilate to the dominant culture, right? And mm. you know don't be so cultural out in public, and don't you know that happens in the home, but you know try to assimilate as much as possible and kind of you know uh, whitewash yourself in a way. And so this book kind of takes a different angle of you know let's actually create let's let's cope with discrimination by actually creating pride in oneself and in one's culture and ethnicity um, by recognizing those who are similar color skin tone who are doing great things and the other one of the reasons we wanted to write this book was you know we recognized that there was a need for uh, to write a book that could reach as many you know brown kids or people of color as possible um, mm-hmm. and we hadn't quite seen anything like that on the shelf that was also based in uh, you know sound research so you know, some of the things we wanted to really convey to parents was to first just kind of check in with yourself, right? We know how much children pick up on even just the attitude of a parent as they walk into a room. Mm -hmm. Uh, Little kids are very perceptive and they don't quite know how to separate, you know, the parents' feelings from their own sometimes. So it's really helpful for a parent to check in with themselves, you know, notice what they're even feeling as they kind of approach a topic like this. It can be very difficult, very um, emotional, very frustrating, very you know, just sad sometimes to kind of approach. So it doesn't mean not to have those feelings. It's just to acknowledge them for yourself so that you can experience them authentically with your child. Mm-hmm. If you don't acknowledge, let me put it in a positive way, the more that a parent can acknowledge emotions in a healthy way and express them in a healthy way, kids will understand that and not then grow up feeling kind of confused about like, why do I feel maybe frustrated or, or like an outcast every time I go out in public? Mm-hmm. The parent can really highlight that for them. Yeah. Um, we also encourage parents to ask open-ended questions. So if, if any parents of teens know, if you just ask, how was your day? You're going to get, it was fine. Um, you know, kind of that grocery store response that you give to the checkout clerk. Yeah. Um, but open-ended questions allow for more uh, fruitful conversation. Um, you know, so tell me about what that was like, for example, or mm-hmm. how did you respond when this happened? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what were you thinking when you saw this? And it, mm-hmm. it, it just helps you know, develop that language around it. And like I said earlier, when it comes to the importance of relationships, you deepen that trust and that openness in a relationship with a child. I think another thing is that when you're having this conversation with your child, um, especially around the age of Zaha, um, she's very concrete thinking. So it's important mm-hmm. to even phrase the conversation of race and racism around what's fair and unfair, because children around that age understand what's fair and unfair, right? Like yes. if you give, the example I always give parents is like, if you give the brother two cookies and you give the sister one cookie, Mm -hmm. they will understand that there's a discrepancy. So you could use that as a way of being able to launch of how certain groups in our community are um, not receiving as much as other groups or are not um, being able to um, get their needs met like other groups. And what is that like? And have you seen that happen at school or has that happened to you? So really being inquisitive about a child's experience and very being concrete because developmentally, they do understand things in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, That's important. But a little bit more deeper questions like Jeff was talking about, that's great for adolescents when they get older, having a lot more of those in-depth conversations. So Mm -hmm. um, there's also being able to read children's books to kids. So I think Mm -hmm. that's huge. Children Mm -hmm. project themselves onto the character, right? So Mm -hmm. they'll see someone like Zahra or they'll see another character and, and wonder about themselves or think that their experience is similar for themselves. 
So parents could use that as a launching point of deeper discussions of like, oh, what did you think Zahra felt? Or how mm-hmm. have, um, how was that when Zahra went into the school and, and nobody was, um, no one really looked at her the same way or looked at her skin tone. Has that ever happened to you? So you could use that as a vessel. Um, there's, I also love Crayola's different skin tone crayons and markers. Mm-hmm. I think that's really an important tool to have for children um, when they're using crayons because um, not having a color that represents your skin tone is just so when you're drawing yourself or you're yeah. drawing your family. Yes. That's huge for a child, right? Because a lot of their world is expressed through art and mm-hmm. drawings. So ha- investing in tools like children's books and Crayolas like crayons that have the skin tone representation is also really um, important. Yeah. There's just so many other ones. I mean, I think <laughs> modulating media, I don't know if you want to talk about Yeah, that. in terms of just kind of the concept of like modulating media too, it's not that we want to, we don't want to encourage parents to like completely shield their children from what's happening in the world, right? We want mm-hmm. children to grow up having a, you know, an honest and authentic experience of what's happening in the world, but that doesn't mean they need to watch the, you know, some of those videos of police brutality, for example, or people being, you know, um, experiencing violence or or upfront discrimination, because Mm -hmm. that can be kind of overwhelming to children, right? So are there other ways that, you know, parents should explore other other ways to convey what happened or tell the story of what happened or pick certain scenes even. So really just being mindful of, can you get the point across? Can you convey that or have that fruitful conversation with your child without necessarily having to expose them to something that their brain might not be ready to see yet? You know, I mean, even for myself as an adult and as a therapist, seeing, you know, the video of George Floyd's murder, it was overwhelming for me and is very much seared into my mind. And it, while it was important for me to see that and, and understand, you know, how severe and impactful that situation was, mm-hmm. I. I can't imagine having a young child see that. I think there's just many other ways to explain what happened um, to George Floyd and or to others. And there are actually been books written um, about how this, I think there's a book called Let Something Happened in Our Neighborhood or Something Happened Today, um, a children's book specifically about how to explain uh, police brutality uh, mm-hmm. to, to children. So that's that's another suggestion that we have for parents. Yes, and I think you you guys did a wonderful job with the book already because I was going to the, the preview and I saw that it's like a beautiful illustration, you know, illustration book with so much colors. I mean, that will attract a child to actually pick it up and read it. But is it also is it also suitable for you know for parents or for people that are looking forward to you know having kids later in the future? Um, or is it primarily for is it just for the kids or also for parents with the kids together? That's a great question. I think that first of all, our illustrator Monica did such an amazing job. I mean, she, the illustrations are stunning you're right it's so colorful it's so colorful um and i think that it although this book was written for children um i think that there's still a lot of power and meaning um so we do have a lot of friends that are purchasing it for themselves so Mm -hmm. they are very excited to have a book that represents them right so as zahra thinks about who does she look like her family reminds her here are all these great people that you that share your skin tone We've done amazing things. So if someone at school tells you that they don't like the color of your skin, remember that, you know, Frida Kahlo, um, Martin Luther King Jr., Barack Obama, mm. um, our vice president in the U.S., um, yes. Kamala Harris is, uh, you know, they're all share your skin tone. And mm. so she can think, oh, these are these amazing people that have gone on and done incredible things. Mm. And I one day will, I'm also an important person and I will one day do an incredible thing. And I think as a kid hearing that message, that's powerful. 
but also as a teen or an adult. I think that's an important message too. So mm. I think it depends if you are a collector of children's books and you like <laughs> it, um, by all means, uh, I think that would be a great resource for yeah, you. Even, even if you just love great art, Monica just did such a great job yeah. telling a story and, and bringing it to life. Even with some touches of humor, um, uh, you'll, you'll have to wait to see when it comes out, but it's just it's it's very, very clever. You know, and, and those who were involved with the development of the book um, after we wrote it, getting it to the, the physical uh, thing, you know, even conveyed to us if they were individuals of uh, background of color, conveyed how much it kind of helped them even realize like, oh, growing up, like my mom's skin tone was lighter than mine. And people always question, you know, was she even my mom? And so this book kind of helped them recognize an experience that they had um, looking backwards and then how they can kind of feel proud about their skin tone as a result. So I would say, you know, I mean, it's, it's not going to, you know, I would encourage adults to buy it and, and just for the, for the art and for the experience and, and yeah. just as a, a way to hold on to and recommend to other friends and families too. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to the book. I'm going to put the, the link to your website for the book on, in the show notes for this episode. But the book is going to be available on Amazon and other book outlets um, on the, from the 14th of September 2021. So I would encourage everyone to pick it up. For people like me who love to read books with illustrations also, please pick it up. Thank too. you. <laughs> that was so awesome. That. Yes. So um, please, can you um, talk to me about the impact of, you know, of racial trauma on our mental health? I know both of you are experts in, you know, mental health. What was the, what was the impact of um, racial trauma on, on our mental health and how can we develop, you know, resilience um, against it? Oh, that's a great question. I think that, uh, so part of my dissertation research was actually studying um, the impact of discrimination on the Middle Eastern American community. And in order for me to study the Middle Eastern community, I had to look at research across all the different communities as well, because, mm. um, for the Middle Eastern community, there's not a lot of research, so I needed to pull from other communities to understand their experience. And one of the things that really came out of it is that we know that there's very clear cut uh, research that discrimination impacts mental health, impacts the um, has led to depression, anxiety, post traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. um, you know, and really has people um, questioning their self esteem and feeling like they've lost control and power when they've experienced discrimination. Mm -hmm. So we, we do know that that is a line that um, has been correlated. And so the next step is now that we know that it causes that level of trauma within us, um, what do we do about it? And so that's really where the work is in trying to build the res resilience. Um, one of the ways of building resilience is something called racial socialization. So racial socialization is the message that we use in our book. Um, it has different components to it. So with Dr. Hughes's research, one component was helping, um, which we had written about is called cultural socialization, which is instilling cultural pride um, in the child, reminding them of traditions, of important people in their culture, of people that share their skin tone and have gone on and done important things. Mm -hmm. That has been helpful. Um, because all of a sudden, when you experience discrimination and someone says, I don't like your skin tone, you can say, well, you know, Barack Obama was president. And so, and he looks like me. So, you know, and you can use that as a buffer for yourself. You can talk to yourself and say, hey, like, this is really, these are these important people that I can carry in my heart that have done really great things. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is prep, um, preparation for bias. So that means that um, having the honest conversation that I know that a lot of um, Black families in the U.S. have had to have with their ch children about um, 
this is this might happen to you just because of your skin color. You might yeah. get pulled over by a cop or you might experience um, something at a store or whatever the case might be for you. Yeah. So having those conversations, although initially the research has found could um, have a child question you know, their background, um, yeah. being able to do it in a way that is um, informative and you're trying to instill safety in a child because yeah. there's a reality in the world that you cannot always protect them from. Yeah. Um, and then uh, also instilling the cultural pride that can also have positive results uh, on their mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, the third thing that they have found in the research is promotion of mistrust. And that means if you tell children at a young age, don't trust this group, don't trust that group because this is what they're going to do to you. Um, that actually is a negative impact on mental health. That doesn't serve as a buffer for the child because now the child is going out into the world questioning all their social interactions Mm. and all the people that they come across based Mm. off of the messages that were communicated. Mm. So ultimately, if we look at all of these different modes, these are all three modes of communication to a child. It's up to a parent to decide which road they want to take and how they want to take it and what tools they want to use to to communicate messages of race and racism. Mm. And through the way that you communicate, you build your child's resilience. Yeah. And that, and that's really, that's one big component that we talk about and, um, and that we're hoping that the book could be, because when I was looking at my patient, when we were both looking at our patients, I was like, man, I wish I really had this book, a book that could remind them mm-hmm. how important they are. And I just remember there's all these pictures online of kids pressing their hands against the TV screen when Barack Obama was being um, sworn in. I think I was doing it too. It was such a, you know, it was such an impactful moment where I remember during those eight years, I would walk around being like, I have a president that looks like me. Mm -hmm. I have a president that knows my culture, that understands me. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that's what I want. We both wanted in our book was like, we wanted to be able to have a place in the book where um, a kid could say, oh yeah, there you go. Like there's the people that look like me and they're really important. And that builds that resilience against, um, against stress and, uh, and negativity. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I would also just kind of add to what you're saying is that, you know, to your earlier question of like, what's the impact on mental health? You know, it's, it's, you know, we see that increase of mental health symptoms like depression and anxiety and trauma, but then there's the impact that has on one's day-to-day life. Um, you know, and, and Sheila's research specifically was on college students. And so, you know, that racial, discrimination, that racial trauma led to students questioning whether they could stay in school or not, or not uh, doing as well in their classes as they normally would. You know, we also have the flip side of the kind of model minority um, uh, discrimination where it's like you're expected to to be perfect, right? A lot of the times the Asian community experiences that, um, you know, where uh, that can lead to a lot of stress and a lot of burnout and a feeling of needing to be perfect and what happens if you're not. So you have, you know, kids not you know, uh, uh, adjusting to college very easily, not, you know, feeling isolated, dropping out. Um, you know, we see it in the workplace a lot. We've known that for a long time. And so, you know, even what we just watched uh, in, the, in heights. the Heights last night. Yeah, the, the Lin-Manuel Miranda film or a musical and the one of, you know, we won't spoil it too much. It happens fairly early on, but one of the main characters um, decides, you know, is kind of questioning her if she can actually maintain in a, at Stanford University coming from, uh, Washington Heights in New York, and after you know, experiencing a lot of discrimination at Stanford, and yeah. being um, and having been questioning her place in it and her role, so I think that 
um, it was an accurate description of like the stress of discrimination carries on on multiple levels for you individually within your community within society and has a rippling effect because you're constantly questioning your sense of belonging and when our sense of belonging is challenged yeah. that is really one of the main things that leads to mental health Toby, I'm, I'm curious, I mean, if it's okay to ask you, uh, yes. you know, uh, being in, in Germany, I mean, what's your experience been like? I, I don't know if you've had any sort of questions or thoughts for yourself or experiences that are relevant to this. Yeah. So for me personally, I've, I've been blessed not to, you know, have any racial issue with, um, with the Germans, but I have friends, I have, um, you know, close people, colleagues that have really experienced um, you know, racial issues, like being insulted or being maltreated because of this color of their skin of their um yeah where they come from yeah mm. yeah so it has always been like very for me it's, it's, it's always been a, a burden like you know stepping out every day out of my comfort zone out of my apartment going out into the world like oh my god let today just be a wonderful day in which i'm not you know confronted because of my skin color or because of my mm. of where i come from actually but mm. yeah it has always been that every day you know um preparation mental preparation that to the end it might happen but um i'll be ready for it i'll be i'll let it go with with grace and poise <laughs> mm, yeah. really yeah. takes a tax that's a that's a toll that it takes on the body every single day right yes and, uh, yeah yeah yes. that others don't have to worry about you know i mean those who don't have to think about that can just walk out the door and, and go about their day it's just you know closing the doors is a thing you don't even have to think about exactly um, yeah, yeah. Yes. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you haven't had any direct experiences. Wow, you made it to the very end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'm grateful for your time, your love, and your contributions. Subscribe, like, review, and share this podcast. God bless you. Bye.